Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Kylie McDaniel. Kylie is the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs. He just released his list of the top 200 prospects and is here today to talk about that, among many other things. Kylie, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, Kylie, before we get into your prospect list, tell me about how you got into baseball and where the interest in covering prospects came from. Uh, whew, I'll give you the short version. Uh, I got my first job in baseball and turning in baseball ops with the Yankees while I was in college. And I found one person <laughs> in my life that knew some people and used his name to bother someone with the Yankees for about 18 months until he would see me. And then about six months after that, he decided to give me an internship to come in for a couple days uh, per week for a couple hours. And then after my first day, I, I was there from like nine to seven. He was like, all right, we'll probably have more for you to do than this. <laughs> so so I interned there all through the summers at school and then just sort of bounced around with a couple other teams, a couple other writing jobs. And then sort of here I am now. But uh, yeah, I guess the prospect stuff and more specifically, I – I guess when you start out in baseball, if you don't have like a specific like you're not like the stat guy or the scouting guy, you're just sort of I'm here, which is how I started. You get kind of thrown in the player development bucket. And then when you're in the player development bucket, you want to kind of branch out and learn scouting. And so, uh, you know, I was sort of uh, mentored in a way when I was with the teams enough that I was sort of I knew enough to be damn <laughs> to be uh, to do some damage. And, uh, and then when I kind of got on my own, kind of expanded from there and kind of realized it's much easier to break into the sort of prospect end of writing rather than, you know, kind of the Buster only Ken Rosenthal world. And also I was, you know, looking to get back with a club and uh, as a scout and things like that. And so obviously you want to be doing as a, like a resume builder what the job would be. So I just kind of got into this and then kind of hung around long enough that I carved out a niche, I guess. So I know Ben Lindbergh has talked about having gone to scouting school. Was that part of your process? Did they send you through a scouting school? Uh, in a way, there's like a formal like MLB scout school and some teams sit, like basically won't hire you to scout unless they send you there. Uh, and other the ones I worked for just didn't really care about it because they felt like they could train their guys in a more specific and better way for what they want them to do. And so a lot of times teams will have like uh, like I'll have like a Dominican scout school. We're doing Dominican instructs, which is like a very sort of low key environment. They'll send all their young scouts down there with some scouting directors and kind of use those players that no one's seen before as like a sort of a pure way to teach them how to scout in the way that the team wants them to. And so the teams I was with did sort of a version of that, uh, but I was typically in the office. So then you'd have like the, you know, director of player development, director scouting, the VPs, things like that. They'll be around. And then when they sort of announce like, oh, I'm going to go see such and such affiliate today. Who wants to go with me? I was the dupes that kept saying yes and following along with them. And then you sort of sit next to them at a game and, you you know, they, we watch a curveball. I still remember when I was with the Orioles, I sat with one of our VPs when Jake Arrieta was in AAA and there was a curveball. I was like, what do you got on that? And I go, 60, 65. He's like, yep, I got a 65. And we went through the entire game grading every single pitch. And that's kind of the best the best way to learn like that. And typically, you only get that sort of opportunity when you're with a team. So, the, yeah, I guess every team has their own kind of scout school. And only, I don't know, I'd say half, maybe two-thirds of them do the, uh, the formal scout school thing. I'm curious about the difference between how you see front offices or front office executives, scouting staffs, compile their own lists, whether it be before a draft or just their own internal list of the best prospects in baseball, and how you think those lists differ from some of the lists we see on the internet. Are there things that internet prospect guys overvalue compared to what front offices look at? Yes. Uh, so I talked about this on uh, on the Fangrass podcast with Carson. I think it went up today. Um, but teams don't do top 100s. So in a lot of ways, they pay attention to the ones on the Internet because, you know, if you're 
I don't know, the Rays, like you you can make a list of for each team. These are the guys that we like in this order. But you realize the top 50 prospects in baseball are typically not available uh, and maybe even further, maybe the top 100. And if they are, it's like a James Shields, Will Myers kind of thing where it's like, all right, this is a big deal. Like for the Phillies, the Cole Hamels deal, like some of those guys suddenly then get on the table. And that's sort of like an all hands on deck. You don't really need to have that ready. You're, like that guy doesn't come available like five minutes before the deadline. And so you need to be prepared for it. Um, so they have no reason to do that. And so they'll pay attention to the internet ones as sort of figuring out a proxy for what the industry in general thinks about a guy. Um, but they don't really participate in that specifically. Uh, and then when you go to like the individual team lists, it really it varies by situation. So, uh, you know, like some of the teams I'm with uh, would prefer the performance guy near the big leagues. Some would prefer the high you know, high risk, high reward guy in the lower levels, it would differ based on what your system was like and what the deal was like and sort of who they said yes and no to. There were, I remember there was one team when I was in Pittsburgh that we talked to about a trade and it was like they said no to the top 30 prospects in their organization. And then I was one of the guys that they're like, all right, go find someone else. Like, hey, is there a guy in the DSL? Like, I don't know. Like I was the low guy on the totem pole. So I had to go kind of fish some names out and try to figure out who was who. And when you're in that level where you're all the way down at the bottom the team that loves the triple a grinder without a lot of tools at that point you want the dsl guy like you want to get something that could be something and you don't want the guy that you're not even sure you want to put on the 40 man you want the guy in the dsl that you know might turn into someone and further for the draft stuff uh i always tell people uh there's a lot of people that follow the draft online that think they know a lot about it that will chide a writer for saying oh you had this guy 15th he should be eighth or he should be 23rd and I always tell them, like, you do not realize how much variation there is room to room, team to team on these draft lists. Like, I've I've been in rooms where there's a guy that's a consensus first rounder that goes 22nd. And the internet goes nuts and says, oh, he should have been gone by 15. Great pick. And our team doesn't have him in the top five rounds. And there's, like, dozens and dozens of examples of that every year to where, like, an industry consensus that this guy belongs in the middle of the first round. What that really means is 20, maybe 25 teams think that. But when there's like seen as a slam dunk consensus, that means there's five teams that don't agree at all. And I don't think people quite realize it. They think all 30 teams agree when the Internet says they that there's a broad consensus when that's almost never the case. What are the limitations to top 100 or in your case, top 200 lists like this? The more you think about the process of doing these lists, the more stupid they seem. Because the what we're saying we're doing is you're doing upside. You're considering upside. You're considering risk. Uh, and like distance to the big leagues and these like four or five factors and then you're doing that for all you know hundreds of players even if you make a top 100 you're considering hundreds of players and so what you're saying is oh my brain is is smart enough that I can handle seven pieces of information for 400 players and then rank them appropriately based on that information it's like it's ridiculous like no one can do that and so like really what we're doing is trying to create a proxy for industry consensus trade value and that's sort of the easy way to get to what we're talking about but the concept that i could tell you that the 10 percentile outcome of this guy in rookie ball is this and the 90th percentile outcome is that and that all of that is encapsulated into what i'm doing like it's not really true that's hopefully it ends up being the same thing as the trade value thing that i'm actually trying to do uh, but that's why some people say, you know, uh, like Dave Cameron at our site had said that, uh, oh, I think people are overvaluing like high risk, high reward prospects. And I was like, maybe you are because you can go back to a list 10 years ago and say, oh, this guy that was in rookie ball is 50th on the Baseball America Top 100 and he had zero war. That's a waste. 
yes, that's true. But more accurately, what we're trying to do is is represent how much this guy is worth in like a trade in a two, you know one to two year sense. And that guy that got zero war probably could have been traded for a guy that got 50 war at some point. So at some level, what we're measuring is in such a short term that it kind of is right. It's just a matter of the longer term thing that we're having trouble considering uh, when we're ranking all these players. Uh, that could end up being right or wrong, but that's kind of past the point. Like GMs have already been fired or extended by then. So what they actually end up being isn't as important as sort of how they handle the asset uh, when they're on the list. You go about things a little differently by grouping players into clusters. You have a tier, uh, a top tier with two players in it. You describe both Chris Bryant and Byron Buxton as 70 future value. Tell me a bit about each player and why they're in a class by themselves. Bryant is, I think, is unique because he is the... uh, for the time being, can play, I guess, a premium position, third base. Uh, there's a question if he'll stay there. I, I think within five years he'll be in right field. Uh, but he's got legitimate 40 home run power, uh, has the bat to ball and play discipline skills to at least be a average bat, say 260, 330 on base with you know 30 to 40 homers and play third base. And is actually quick enough he could give you a little base running value also. I know one team told me that if they would have drafted him, he'd be playing center field right now. Um and then Buxton is like it's just not I can't say off the charts because I've 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 put his tools on a chart, uh, but it's like the tool, <laughs> the tool package itself, like when you in uh, an aggregate is kind of off the charts. That it's just like seventy arm, eighty speed, seventy defense, chance for sixty power, chance for seven bat. Like you don't really see those numbers aggregated into one player. And if he wasn't, you know, if he didn't get hurt down the stretch, uh, he'd probably be number one. He was number one for me last year at my my last outlet. So I, I feel like those two guys give you the upside and uh, sort of, I guess, the floor or the certainty that there'll be at least something that you feel comfortable putting him there. Whereas the rest of the guys have, you know, some question about the upside, some question about the certainty, some question about a position. Carlos Correa had an injury issue. Giolito's coming off of Tommy John. Like there's a question with all these guys. Whereas with those two, they could obviously flame out like anybody could flame out, but it's, it seems like uh, the best combination of sort of abilities available. How much more value is there in a prospect, an elite prospect like Bryant or Buxton, compared to players even in the third or fourth grouping? Boston, for example, has five players on your list with a future value of 55 or higher, including Blake Swihart, who's ranked ninth overall on your list. But I wonder if either the Twins or the Cubs would trade Bryant or Buxton for all five of those guys. What do you think? This is something I wrote about about a month ago that I'm still trying to figure out because I I made this big grid of – I'm actually looking at it right now, which is kind of mesmerizing – like a grid of uh, teams and then players by future value group. So I can, you know, if I want to rank the systems, which I'll be doing once I finish all 30 lists, you can just, you know, line them up and then say like, all right, this team has 355s, this team has 355s, so those cancel out. And then you can look at sort of the disparities and say, okay, the Dodgers have 265 players that the, you know, uh, Red Sox don't have. And then where the disparity for their, you know, Red Sox is they have, you know, 455 players that the Dodgers don't have. Okay, would you trade those 455 players for those 265s? Probably not. Uh, so then you do, okay, the Dodger system is better. We'll move them up. Uh, but then you'll get into certain ones where it'll be like, all right, this team's got a 70 prospect and this one has six fifty fives. And I'm, I don't know how to value that because that trade would never happen. So you can't look at it and be like, oh, if someone offered me this, like the answer would be X, Y, or Z. Cause that's where most of these sort of questions can be settled is, you know, there's some way to say, oh, it's, you know, three players for one or four for two, or this guy's a little better than that. You can kind of do the math, but the math of, 555s or 170 like that isn't 
inherently give you an answer. Like that's sort of too long of a logical gap to go through without an in-between point of, oh, there's been a trade like this that you can kind of put uh, as, a, as an example to kind of bridge that gap. So I'm still wrestling with that. I think there's an objective way to handle it that includes a whole lot of research. And I think by next year's list, we'll have that uh, at least answered better than we do right now. So I, I guess I'll, I'll ask for Mulligan for this year, and then hopefully by next year I'll have this figured out a little better. The interesting thing about a trade like that is we, we really haven't seen something like that where a team has dealt five unproven prospects that are sort of ranked in the top 50, let's say, or even up to 75 for a top three guy. We haven't seen that, but I, I don't think any of the teams involved would do it. I don't think the Twins would trade Buxton for those five Red Sox players. I don't think the Red Sox would trade those five guys for Buxton. Yeah, I actually – in the article I wrote, I said that there are certain teams and I point out the Nationals as one in part because they have Giolito who's an elite prospect and then they have a bit of a gap till the next guy. But also because they're a big budget team like say the Yankees or the Dodgers that they can buy all the 50s and 55s they want. And so I think because of that, a 70 would be worth more to them than it would be to say the Rays where those 55s are all starting for them and saving them millions of dollars. Um, so I think there is a situation where if – Say the Rays had, you know, Yon Moncada and the Nationals or a team like that offers them six guys that all project to be big league regulars within the next year or two. The Rays have to take that trade because of the kind of team they are. But that's a very specific example <laughs> that will probably never happen. And in any other example, I think that comes down to similar to how you know NFL coaches are still not going for it on fourth down as much as they should. It's because the conventions of football tell them they shouldn't. And so if you do something you're not supposed to do and it fails, you get fired. And if you fail doing something you're supposed to do, it's just like, oh, you just you know failed like everyone else fails. And so doing that sort of trade, if you're the guy that trades 555s, it could be like a Herschel Walker trade where you just gave away the whole system. You could be a you know a greedy size more Cliff Lee for a Cologne type deal. And if you're the guy trading the 70, what if next year he turns into Mike Trout? Like you get fired immediately. Like what? There's no reason for either side to take that risk when presumably if you know you do really well in July too or really well in the draft, maybe you've got 555 guys next year and that like need you had suddenly goes away and you'd rather have that 70 guy back. Uh, so I, th I think it's just the risk aversion and you know people's self-preservation kind of comes into play there. Is there a type of prospect or a maybe even a specific skill that has a higher bust potential? Typically, the swing and miss power guy is the, I don't know, I don't know if it's most common because I feel like I'd have to have a study to back that up, but uh, that feels like the most common bust of a hitter. I think there's also like the center field fly swatter guy that doesn't really have a lot of power, but those guys never really get hyped that much in the first place, whereas... The power guy you can point to, you know, Russell Brannion, Dallas McPherson. Current examples would be like Miguel Sano, Chris Bryant, uh, Joey Gallo. Uh, those are that's like sort of the profile. But those guys are all in the top twenty overall, and presumably, well, not presumably, they are there because they show some plate discipline skills. They performed at a young age at competitive levels. They have sort of the swing and the looseness of their swing to project for them to do it. But if there's a guy with that profile in like the middle to latter stages of a top 100, that guy's probably sort of the, the profile you don't want to mess with, which I think is the reason why I don't think I have a guy like that uh, in like the middle to late stages of my list. Uh, and then obviously from the pitcher end of things, it's just anyone that's super young that's still teenager, early 20s that throws really hard but the, com the command and the mechanics aren't quite there. Like that's the guy whose arm is most likely to blow up. So that's 
you know, pitchers obviously more inherently risky than hitters, but that's the sort of riskiest version of a pitcher, I guess. One of the things I've noticed looking at all of the lists that have come out over the last month or so is it seems like we're seeing the demise of the elite first baseman. Why do you think that's the case? I think stuff like that where it's cause like first base never has a huge glut in the minor leagues. Like uh, I'm trying to think if there was an era where there may have been more. But I think if there's an era where there's a lot of first basemen in like the top 50 of a list, it's probably when there's, oh, there's Prince Fielder. And then there's a guy that just got drafted out of college that's, you know, 22 and is probably not going to be on the list next year because he'll be in the big leagues. Like I feel like that goes in, in, in phases. It's the, same, it's the same way with the relievers, that the best prospects that end up being relievers or first basemen don't start there. Miguel Cabrera was played shortstop for a year or two in the big leagues and was seen as a guy that, oh, if this guy doesn't put on any weight, he could play shortstop. Uh, so I think because you have such a small population of guys that go into the big leagues as first baseman or relievers that it'll go in uh, you know an ebb, ebb and flow based on if there happens to be two or three guys at one time where there's zero. Uh, but I think at any given time, there's probably there's, – there's a theory that every draft class is essentially the same, that at draft time they can look different. But then if you look back at them – the ones that are really good and the ones that are really bad, they're usually the difference is just a handful of guys that, you know, oh, this guy went in the sixth round and got, you know, 70 career war. And so it's a good draft class. It's like, really, it's just a good player. And they just happen to not be distributed perfectly. And I think that's more what it is when you're talking about something that's always a small population, you're going to get kind of random pockets of good and bad. The reverse of the first base situation is the rise of shortstops. 23 made the top 200 on your list. Do you think that's just a random cluster at one position, like we saw with great first basemen in the 90s or we're seeing with top end third basemen now? Or does the value at the premium position simply outweigh players from other positions? Well, I think you're seeing a higher emphasis on base running and defense now. And so not only are teams drafting those guys higher and paying them more money internationally, but they're also getting appreciated more and getting more of a chance to play every day than they may have in the steroid era. So I think that's a factor. I think that's not just the ebb and flow, but also with shortstops, like going back to what I said before, like prospects start there and then go somewhere else. So like just going down the top guys, Addison Russell, there's a question as to whether he can play shortstop. Carlos Correa, the second one, there's a question. Corey Seager, you could argue he might be playing shortstop in the big leagues this year. I don't think he's going to play very long. Uh, Yohan Moncada would be on the list if he signed. He'd probably be listed as a shortstop, but he's not going to last very long. Uh, then you got J.P. Crawford, Lindor. They should probably stick. And then as you get lower, it you know sort of becomes like uh, Hano Albies. Is he going to have enough power to matter? It's Tim Anderson. Is he going to make enough contact? It's it's sort of like shortstop is where the good athletes go. I guess along with center field and hopefully pitcher. Um, and so. Certain guys are getting appreciated more, but I think there's always going to be and probably in a way has always been uh, a lot of shortstops. It just sort of depends on what your definition of shortstop is. And I was a little liberal uh, in saying like if if he'll break in and play some shortstop, then I'll call him a shortstop. Uh, Whereas some guys, I have a pretty strong conviction they won't last there very long. Same way in that I listed Brian as a third baseman, even though I think by the time he has free agency, he won't be a third baseman and, you know, maybe in a year or two. But He'll play some there, so we'll call him that for now and just note in the comment that he's not that. So it may also be a function of just the sort of, you know, the notation of what position guy plays. Do you think it's possible the position is being overvalued at this point? Do you think that's what potentially caused Jerickson Profar to be overrated when he was at the top of these lists? I don't know. It's it's hard to say, especially for a guy like Profar where there's, you know, been some injuries and a lot of times you can chalk up struggles to injuries or just being new to the big leagues and, you know, Javier Baez, everyone thinks he'll be fine, but he looked terrible. And if you didn't know anything and you just, you know, saw his numbers in the big leagues, you'd be like, oh, this guy's terrible. Like, he's not going to last very long. I can't believe he was up this long. Uh, 
Yeah, you can you know lump Profar in there. I remember Hank Blaylock was terrible when he came up, and then he kind of figured it out at least for a stretch. And uh, there's sort of a historic number of top prospects that like failed this year. So I, I'm, I'm hesitant to say that something is broadly overrated because I think technically, if that's the case, then there should be an adjustment already, which would then make it properly rated. Uh, so yeah, I guess the, I guess there'd have to be a bigger a bigger trend to point at for me to declare that there is a big trend. The highest ranked pitcher on your list was the Dodgers' Julio Urias, who's only 18 years old. Tell me a bit about him. Yeah, that's the story is almost unbelievable. Uh, I actually just talked to one of the guys that signed him a couple days ago, and he was telling me that with the Dodgers, they went there to go see a catcher that was on his team, like they were wanted to sign him. And then Urias 15, and he throws 90 to 92, and they're like, this is pretty good for a lefty. And one of the head guys is like, why wasn't, why didn't we come to see this guy? I'm like, well, we saw him in the 80s. He's kind of a pitchability guy. And they're like, all right, well, he hasn't turned 16 yet. And he's already in the 90s, like comfortably and has a good breaking ball. And, you know, like this looks pretty good. And they're like, OK. And apparently he, they could get him for a million dollars because he had like kind of a weird eye problem. He used to, like had a tumor on his eye that was removed. And some teams were worried he would have to battle blindness and stuff like that. And if you look at his picture on the Internet, like it still looks like there's something like it looks like his eyes jacked up. But Look at his numbers. He was the age of a high school senior and he was like carving up the Cal League, which, you know, nobody carves up the Cal League. Uh, so it's it's like Fernando Valenzuela, like level talent and obviously being Mexican with the Dodgers that, um, you know, is an, is an easy comparison. But he basically could have probably gotten guys out in the big leagues in the bullpen last year if they wanted to. And given that the Dodgers don't have to be super conscious about like uh, service time and all that sort of thing, they – I mean, he should be on talent basis should be up this year, but they're going to put him in double A and, you know, who knows how long that'll last. But he's he he's just a really unique guy that it will be very interesting to follow. Whereas, you know, some of these other guys like Corey Seager, Carlos Correa, they they look like guys we've seen before. Like you can sort of make a comparable. You can imagine how it could, the different possibilities and your eyes just a guy where it's it's hard to sort of figure out where the where the limits are and what he can do and what's going to happen. He could be great for baseball if he comes up next year or even later this year. He's 18, 19 years old and ends up being a star. That could be a big deal. And he'll have the benefit of not having Tommy Lasorda being his manager and having him pitch 280 innings when he's 19 years old. Hey, maybe, maybe he just would have been soft. If, uh, <laughs> so. you, you, I mean, uh, you don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> Tell me about uh, evaluating a catcher's defense is tricky at the major league level. How do you go about doing that for prospects? Yeah, there's not. I mean, teams have framing information for the minor leagues. Uh, I if the, if it does exist uh, publicly available, I'm not aware of it, or it's not reliable enough that people are bringing it to my attention. Uh, so you deal more in I don't want to say generalities, but you're looking more at like the tools to catch. So especially when you're looking at like high schoolers and July two guys and the low minors guys, you, you want to see the feet and the hands and then the brain. Like if, if he can move around, if he shows an ability to catch the ball and throw the ball, if he shows an ability to sort of uh, have the work ethic and the interest and in sort of, you know, uh, you know, dealing with the pitcher, calling the pitches, calling the game, things like that. If you have those three things are in place until about double A, you don't really pay attention to the other stuff because you, f- you assume he'll figure it out. And then once you get to double A and triple A, talking about a guy like Swihart, that's when you get more to like the skills and the, all right, how does he actually handle, handle the pitchers? How does he actually call a game? How is he blocking balls? Not, does he have the ability to block a ball? Is he actually blocking them? And you get to the more, uh, the more detailed stuff and uh, much like, you know, the hitters in AAA, like Greg Polanco and Javier Baez and all these guys that struggled last year that were just look bored in AAA and then they couldn't hit the big leagues. You never know how they're going to react or how their body's going to hold up or how their, you know, their brain's going to hold up or, if they're going to take their struggles 
uh, from the plate with him back to the back to behind the dish. Like there's a lot of unknowns, uh, but you basically shift from tools to skills and with obviously the tools still need to be there. And Swihart is a guy that sounds like he should be at least average, if not a little better. And he's got a plus arm. So he kind of checks all the boxes there. And he's like a live bodied athletic guy that was seen as a bat first guy and has like developed to where uh, he's seen as like an above average glove guy, which is obviously a good indicator that he shows the ability to get better. And while also working on something else, because a lot of the defense first catchers now like uh, Betancourt and Hedges and some of these other guys basically can only be good at one or the other at time just because this, you know, so much focus needs to be there. So he, again, like Brian Buxton checks a lot of the boxes you want. That's why he's in the top 10. But, you know, it's still an open question as to how it's going to work out when things like being a catcher or staying healthy as a pitcher or injuries in general are included. There's obviously can throw a wrench into all of it. What changes, if any, would you make to the current draft process? I don't know if I want to sort of publicly stump for everyone being a free agent. Um, It's, I, I don't like that you can't trade picks. So like, let's say for instance, you're drafting number one overall and you like five guys and you'd like to spend your money and get three out of those five and, you know, effectively trade the number one pick for number, you know, three and eight and 12 or whatever, uh, you should be able to do that. And the way it stands right now, teams can sort of cut deals and then you go overpay a guy later and do a version of that. But you're not you're not free to do any version of that. And if you could trade picks, you could get much closer to being able to do almost any version of that. But the sort of truest sense, if what you want to do is really just v- evaluate how good scouts are, give everyone a budget for signing bonuses, make everyone a free agent, and then everyone bids on every player. And then if you like a guy more than another guy or you're the Yankees picking 27 and you said Mike Trout was number one on your board but you couldn't trade it for him, well, now you can't complain about that. Now anyone can get anybody and it just comes down to how much you value him and it is doing nothing but valuing scouts that are doing a good job, which is supposed to be the point of the draft. And I guess the tangential stuff that MLB wants to happen is to keep costs down and to sort of uh, give bad teams a chance to get better, which if you give hard caps and you know tier it based on last year's record, you're still getting the same thing. Uh, I don't think they like the idea of there being all of them being free agents, and I think they're scared of change, which the trading of draft picks is also there. So I'd like to think that one of one uh, or of those two ideas would be implemented and make it more of a pure uh, evaluation process rather than what it is right now, which is kind of a muddled process. Uh, but I don't know if those are realistic, especially in the short term. If all of the amateur players were free agents, like Dave Cameron proposed a similar system, he wrote a piece about that on Fangraphs, would you include all of the players from other countries in that pool as well? I, I don't know. There's a lot of pushback from people that are involved in the international game with a draft, uh, mainly because of it would probably push the signing age toward 18, which would then take away the impetus for there being trainers, which would then take away from the training, which, you know, because there's not like a high school baseball system in the country, like where would the training come from at that point? Because then if you're talking about sort of, you know, hard slots or a limit on how much you can make, then sort of the business reasons for them to be trained in the first place kind of falls apart. So I'd like for them to be separate so that we can, because the process is different and it'd be dumb to try to treat third world countries like they're, you know, suburban Georgia where kids can play every day and play on travel teams and have, you know, fancy uniforms and all that kind of thing. Like it'd be dumb to try to consider them the same. Uh, But if we could do like a similar thing where it's both the draft for high school and college and then the sort of uh, 
process. If we, I used to call it free agency process for both, where there's just hard caps for each team and then everyone signs, uh, you know, by a certain day and like a certain window. I think that can work. And I, but I think trying to lump them together creates more problems than it solves. Yeah, there would need to be hard caps for that system to work too. Otherwise, the Dodgers and the Yankees could just get every good player. So they would need to be given hard caps with no ability to go over them for that kind of system to work as well. Which the union would immediately do, and I think they will do a version of that in the next CBA just to, you know, if they get slightly better Super 2 terms, they'll sell out all the amateur kids immediately. Uh, but MLB seems super focused on doing an international draft of some sort, and the problem with that is... They think the solution is to get everyone in the same draft, get them all in one pen, and then you can just say no one in this pen can get over $5 million or whatever it is, basically like the draft. But to do that, you have to have the governments agree to be involved. And if you think you're going to get Cuba, Mexico, Japan, Venezuela, uh, Korea, all of these different baseball federations that have very specific ideas of how they want to funnel their players into pro baseball and then also governments that you don't get along with, like it's never going to happen. And if you then have two countries that aren't involved in it at all, and then a Yohan Mankata version of that player comes out of one of these countries, he then is outside of the limits of that and then can sign for 10 times more than the amateur players can get. And it blows up the entire reason for having a draft in the first place. So I think I think a version of what you're saying of what is currently the process, but just with a hard cap. So the Moncada guy can't get over six million, which seems unfair, but that kind of does what MLB wants to happen. And while also still... Uh, not antagonizing these countries, not antagonizing the process of how the talent is developed in these countries and, you know, giving everyone a shot while still, uh, you know, rewarding teams doing a good job. What's the latest on Moncada and Oliveira? Uh, Oliveira still hasn't been cleared by MLB. I don't know what the holdup is. It should have been done by now. Uh, I I have no reason to believe that it won't be done in the next you know week or so. And it sounds like he's in the process of sort of fielding offers. So I imagine he'll be done and... Uh, you know, two weeks or so, early March, I would guess. Uh, and Moncada is at the point where they have sort of collected offers and are getting kind of final bids. And I would imagine he'll be done in seven to ten days, I'd guess. And the Oliveira field is still a little crowded. Uh, I'd say Yankees, Dodgers, Padres, Braves would probably be the four most likely. But the the the, the Derby has more people in it than that. And although I wrote about him last week, if you want to Google around and uh, and then Moncada, it's Dodgers and Yankees are the heavy favorites. And then there's a, a group of maybe a half dozen teams that are kind of lurking. But there hasn't been a clear indication that they're willing that those other teams would be willing to go to 40 million. Like I think the Yankees and or Dodgers will. So I still think it'll be one of those two teams. How deep is the player pool in Cuba? Are we going to start to get to the point now where some of the players signing are second, third division type players? Well, I mean, there's a lot like the showcase where I saw Oliveira and Yadier Alvarez, I guess the other sort of hot Cuban name. There are 18 Cuban players there and two of them are really good. And the other 16 all comparatively basically suck. Uh, but the, but they're Cuban. They're wearing a Cuban <laughs> uniform. And it's like, oh, we got Cubans. And everyone's like on guard. And it's like, I was like, oh, this guy's pretty good. He's got like 55 power. And they're like, oh, he's a DH and he's 28. And you're like, okay, so that's not really a thing. And that's kind of how it was like the whole showcase for me, where it was like, oh, this guy, he's got a little juice. He can run a little bit. And it was like, oh, he can't throw. And he's got, oh, okay, never mind. He's 29. And then he's just like, oh, okay. So this guy might sign for 10 grand and go to double A and hang around for a few years. But that's it's probably not a guy. 
And I mean, I talked to some some scouts on that trip and on I sat next to one of them on one of my flights. And I was like, how many Cuban guys do you have on your pref list? And he's like, well, I've prepped out about 30 of them, but there's like 60 names. And I'm kind of running around with my, you know, like a chicken with his head cut off trying to see all these guys. But, you know, by all indications, the four or five guys everyone's talking about, those are the ones that matter. And maybe there's another four or five that will get, you know, up to a million dollars. But a 26-year-old that should be straight to the big leagues getting a million dollars, that's basically signing a minor league deal with a spring training invite. Like that's not a big deal. Uh, but because it's Cuban, like everyone pays attention. But yeah, it's 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 still just a handful of guys that kind of go in waves that once they sign, then eventually another guy comes out. But uh, yeah, it's just a country where everyone plays baseball. And so if there's – and it's you know a country that has good athletes – and so much like the Dominican, if an entire country has good athletes and plays baseball, there's going to be a lot of baseball players. Imagine if America only played baseball. There'd be a lot of good baseball players. Yeah. Well, and that's part of the problem with the international draft is that in many other countries, you're competing with other sports. And the best way to lure them away is to give them money. And if they don't- at an, as an early an age as possible. That's exactly right. If other sports can match the money you're giving them now, you're going to lose more athletes, which is a problem. And also in countries like this, Puerto Rico is the big example, but I've been told Venezuela is pretty similar economically to Puerto Rico, which is if you can't sign until 18, that means people are going to consider going to college and like getting real jobs and stuff. And like if you have like a well-off family, like the family that if they were in America would send their kid to Vanderbilt, they're going to send them to the Vanderbilt of Venezuela where they don't have baseball teams. And so some guys may stop playing, whereas in the Dominican the only way off the island is to play baseball. And so people aren't going to stop playing baseball, but they might get less instruction and have less infrastructure, which obviously would eventually hurt things, but it would take a while for it to show up. And it's not just in foreign countries. It's here, too. Andrew McCutcheon wrote a great piece recently about how he was jealous of Latin players when they're 16 years old signing for $50,000. And he's saying he would have taken that deal in a heartbeat. And you have to wonder how many Andrew McCutcheons are out there that chose football or basketball instead because that money wasn't there. They could have had them when they were 16, but baseball doesn't have a system that allows that to take place. Yeah, and there's also a problem in the Dominican that if a guy's 18 or 19, he's seen as old. And uh, when I was working for a team, we had our DSL game ended and they brought in a bunch of, you know, a trainer brought in a bunch of his players. And there was just a kid that was 19, that was 90 to 93, flashed an above average breaking ball, was like, you know, it's a little projection, but a, a reliever type guy. And I was like, you know, the scouts with the team are like, oh, would you sign this guy? I was like, yeah, we just drafted a guy in the 19th round and gave him 10 grand. And he, this guy's clearly better than he is. Like, why aren't we signing him? I'm like, well... He'll take a DSL roster spot. We got to get his identity verified. We got to get him a visa. Uh, you know, we got to give him ten grand. We got to do this whole deal, and it works out that it's just easier to draft the junior college guy, give him ten grand, and then release him after a year than to deal with all the garbage that goes with this guy. And they're like, "You're here for a week. This guy, a guy like this, shows up every day for like the rest of time." And I was like, "How many big league relievers never got signed because they were seen as too old at 19?" And they're like, "Oh, probably dozens." And I was like. It's, it's kind of a problem, too. Obviously a smaller one, but, but that's still a problem. Last year, the draft sort of blew up in the Astros' face. They had the whole debacle with Aiken and then with Knicks as well. And they reportedly settled with Knicks for the full value of his slot. Should Major League Baseball have punished the Astros? <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> that's a good question. I feel like they've been punished by the industry because they were seen as sort of bumbling idiots for the way they handled it. You know, I mean, it's, it's it can be debated what actually happened. I think nobody, very few people, actually know the full extent of everything that happened. Uh, but there are there are definitely, I'll say, beliefs that I have not been written about by me or anyone else that we all know uh, that 
people blame this guy. People think this guy was in the right. People think this guy was trying to do the right thing. People think this guy's the one that kind of antagonized the whole situation and that this guy was trying to fix it. And MLB wanted this to happen. Like there's a, a series of events that people be- believe they know what happened. And I would guess probably 75% of that is correct. So you could argue that that and being embarrassed in front of your owner and a high stakes deal, like you could argue they've been punished more than losing a few draft picks would punish them. I feel like if they lost two draft picks this year, their whole <laughs> plan of gathering draft picks would have been completely annihilated. They would have been set back for years if they punished them. And I'm not sure that that necessarily would have been a bad thing. I like that the Astros are trying to do new things. But I also think that if I were the commissioner, if I were Major League Baseball, I would have a problem with a team intentionally trying to lose to gather draft picks. I think their strategy, while it may be smart and it may be the right thing to do now, Major League Baseball should think about a lottery if they're going to stick with the draft because it does encourage teams to just tank for years and years on end. Yeah, and you've seen this with the Sixers in basketball. There's like one thing to be said for the smartest uh, uh, sort of strategic play and then what is the sort of smartest sort of long-term play. If you want to think in poker terms, like there's a cash game strategy and there's a tournament strategy. Where, you know, cash game, you just do what is the mathematical is a 51% that this is the right move. I do it every time and in the long term I'll win out. That's one thing. That's sort of the way that it seems the Astros are making decisions in a lot of these situations. And then in a tournament game, it's all right, this is 51%. But if I lose, I'm out and I maybe I want to save my my bullets to fight when it's going to be 75% because I only get one chance to do this. You know, if you lose, you get one chance. If you keep winning, you'll get other ones. Uh, maybe I shouldn't pick this as my battle. And the calculations I did, if they were forced to honor their contract to Knicks, they get the player, and then they were got the penalties that would have come with that, they would have put well over 50, and depending on the, how you want to calculate it, almost $100 million of value out the door, over a million and change with Brady Aiken, which seems completely unreal. Like, there's a chance if that happened, all of those guys get fired immediately because that's like – the core decision that they were there to do to oversee a rebuild, if you, because of, you know, if you want to call it hubris or just a strategic move or whatever, chase $100 million of rebuilding out the door, like, that's fireable offense. And I think MLB didn't want anything that drastic to happen, which is why they figured out a way to get Nix's money and also to not penalize the Astros. I think they were sympathetic, but I think they easily could have done that other thing, which would have been an enormous story and a you know franchise altering career altering move for all the people involved i want to quickly revisit the 2013 draft because it's been a year where these guys have been playing now and i look at the top of the draft the top five guys those guys are still top prospects on everybody's lists but when you get to six you see colin moran who's fallen quite far and you see trey ball at seven who's not anywhere and he was the seventh pick by the Red Sox, and that was an important pick for the Red Sox as they hadn't picked that high. And, you know, I know they're picking there again this year, but at that point, they hadn't picked that high in like 15 years or something. What would it take for someone like Trey Ball to become a top 100 prospect again? Is he just completely done at this point? Does he have no value around the industry? Uh, no, he does. Uh, he's one of those guys that could have been on the tail end of the top 200. Uh, more likely would be like, you know, 250, maybe 300, like somewhere in that range. And he's a you know teenage lefty, flashes above average stuff. The stuff kind of got a little firmer toward the end of the year. Is kind of trending in the right direction. But he was overdrafted, underslot deal. I've had multiple people tell me that the Red Sox didn't think that the Marlins were going to take Moran. They had targeted Moran with that pick. They had basically you know a top six of guys they wanted to take, and all six of those guys went the six picks in front of them. 
And so they not panic, but they took, you know, the guy they thought was the best fit for what they wanted to do, which would have been a below slide deal for ball. And he has hasn't met expectations yet, but he was sort of a high school projection bet from a cold weather state in the first place. So that's seen as sort of a longer gestating, longer term project in the first place. And for I mean, for all I know, he's going to come out of the gates and blow people away and turn into a top 100 guy this year. He's he's still hanging around the fringes. But yeah, in the in the short term review, Moran has dropped from where he should be and Ball has dropped from where he should be. But Clint Frazier's also dropped a little bit from where he should be. Cole Stewart hasn't been great. Jonathan Gray, I think, was a little overrated before the draft because he hit 100. But there were some deficiencies there. Appel is still a top guy, but he's dropped off a little bit with his struggles last year. Chris Bryant has obviously worked out. Hunter Dozier, there's some questions. Austin Meadows has been hurt. Bickford didn't sign. I mean, the top 10, like, it hasn't been a lot of guys gaining value there. It's been a lot of neutral to down, but it's obviously still early enough, especially with these high school kids that are 19 or 20, that uh, they can still recover. Yeah, and you did see some guys, number 16 that year, J.P. Crawford. He's certainly seen his stock raise. And even at the end of the first round there, Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge is a guy who a lot of outfielders were picked ahead of him. I'm not sure any of them would be if they were to redo that draft now. No, Judge would go easily in the top 15 if they redid that draft. And Braden Shipley, another guy that fell for sort of mysterious reasons, and it's still kind of unclear why because he – People thought he'd go in the top 10 comfortably, and he would go in the top 10 comfortably now if they redrafted it. So he was another one of those guys that just sort of dropped for no apparent reason, and then, you know, doesn't seem like he should have dropped. But <laughs> but I guess everyone looks good in 2020 hindsight, huh? <laughs> that is true. Do you feel like that there's a um, a pedigree that first round, round picks have that even if they're not performing that well in the minor leagues, that they still have that pedigree, especially with guys who are only one year removed, like Ball and Moran for that matter, that they that teams could still trade them for some sort of uh, major league talent or value just because of the pedigree of being a first round pick? Yeah, and that's also why some teams tend to target once you get past the top three rounds or so. Uh, the the high the high level tool guy even if it's you know maybe a dual sport slow burn type guy from high school because uh, they know that guy even if he doesn't perform is going to have trade value to somebody there's going to be teams that value that or or the team that you know has got said no on the first twenty prospects and so they'll just go ask for that guy um, so yeah there there is a sort of mystique that hangs with them a lot of it is he was in the first round somebody liked him we can sell this trade to our fans as we traded for a first round pick. Uh, but there's also like he went in the first round for a reason. So even if he looks bad or things have regressed, there's still an inkling of something there. And oftentimes the the team that trades for like sort of a stalled first round pick like that is the team that liked him the most in that draft. And so when they see that they have an opportunity to acquire him, they'll, you know, move things out of the way and try to clear the way to to make that deal happen. And then you'll see quotes like, oh, you know, we were picking 23 and we had Trey Ball fifth on our board. Like we would have taken him at six if we were at six and taken him right ahead of the Red Sox. We just didn't have an opportunity to, which is, you know, another reason why the way the draft system is set up with no trading and no free agency, it seems kind of dumb that if the Red Sox had Ball seventh on their board and some team had him fifth, the team that had him fifth should have gotten him. Like I think the Red Sox even at the time would have been happy with that if they could have, you know, saved their money and spent it in a different way. But with the way the draft is set up they were forced to take a guy right then you've been listening to kylie mcdaniel kylie is the lead prospect analyst for fangraphs you can give him a follow on twitter at kylie mcd that's k-i-l-e-y-m-c-d kylie thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today yeah thanks for having me 